0: Hi, I'm Eve and In this episode of Modern Law, we explore defamation law in our information age. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. In today's digital age, information has become a powerful tool, capable of spreading rapidly and influencing public opinion like never before. However, this very same power can also be weaponized. Individuals or groups can engage in targeted campaigns of misinformation. They can use online platforms to amplify false narratives and defamatory content. And now there's the rapid growth of artificial intelligence to worry about and deepfake technology which present new challenges in defamation. Now, our laws are designed to discourage false claims and in some circumstances have proven quite helpful in combating disinformation, but taking legal action is lengthy, it's costly, and it's also possible to even use defamation law to shut down free speech. And so we must always strike a balance between protecting individuals' reputations and safeguarding freedom of expression. But it's a balance, obviously, that requires ongoing scrutiny and adaptation to keep pace with the rapidly evolving digital landscape. So to help us navigate these complexities, I'm very pleased to have Justin Safayeni with us today. Justin Safayeni is a partner at Stockwoods LLP, and his expertise lies in administrative and public law also, media and defamation law and commercial litigation and appeals. Justin's particular interest is anti slap proceedings, a legal mechanism designed to protect individuals from strategic lawsuits against public participation. He's written and lectured extensively on the topic, and he's also represented interveners before the Supreme Court, offering his insights and expertise on the leading cases in this area. Justin Safayeni, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's kick this off by just getting to know you a little bit. Tell us a bit about yourself what got you, where you are today? How did you become a lawyer specialized in defamation law?
1: So I'm a, I'm a partner at Stockwoods, which is a litigation boutique in Toronto, and do a variety of, uh, of different things as part of my practice there. But one of the big chunks, if not the biggest chunk of my practice is in kind of defamation and media law and free expression issues more generally. It's an area I've always been interested in. And I knew coming out of law school at Stockwoods, did a lot of this work. And it's just one of those things that kind of since I joined the firm, I made a concerted effort to try and make it part of my practice and seek out those files.
0: What is it that drew you to that particular topic?
1: I mean, I, free expression issues academically for me have always been interesting. And defamation is the vehicle through which a lot of that kind of plays out on a day-to-day basis so that that was always interesting for me i mean the other thing that's uh, there's other aspects of defamation law that are that are pretty fascinating too i mean when you're doing it with media companies you get to work with uh journalists like like yourself and and, and media companies and, and kind of get a sense of the work uh, and the process that goes into an investigation or a story which i find fascinating um, and when it comes to kind of litigating the guts of a defamation case, you're often thrown into an area that you know nothing about and have to come up to speed with very, very quickly. Right. If the story is about policing or the financial services industry or or, or a mining operation or, or whatever, in order to. Uh, effectively litigate the case, you kind of have to become a bit of an expert in all these random areas of uh, of the law or industry or society. And, and defamation kind of affords a way to to learn about all those things uh, while practicing in the same kind of area of law. So I found that attractive as well.
0: So you always wanted to be a lawyer, always wanted to go into free expression issues since uh, long before uh, you went to law school? Um I, I didn't wanna
1: be a lawyer until I finished undergrad and then figured out that I, I didn't, definitely didn't wanna work right away. So law school was a natural way to delay that process for a little while. And then while in law school, I originally had done a business undergrad and I originally thought about being a corporate lawyer, but quickly kind of fell in love with litigation. And from there, defamation was one of the things I found really interesting.
0: And so you probably made up for all that lost time not working since you've joined the practice.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say.
0: Um, Defamation and uh, defamation law has been around for a very long time, right? And I mean, you're operating in this environment at what I would think is a pretty interesting time with a very special media environment. Obviously, we see a lot of issues around disinformation or misinformation, depending on how you want to label it. Being peddled from all sides for reasons that I guess are very uh, very specific to the times we live in. Part of that is media, part of that is the political climate. Obviously, there are many forms of misinformation that don't necessarily take the form of defamation itself or slander or libel. But how, you know, tell us a little bit about how defamation law stands up in these times that we live in right now.
1: So, I mean, it's a, it's a good question to put, I mean, to put the headline first, I, I think defamation law is a pretty good tool to deal with disinformation or, or misinformation, or at least certain kinds of it. And it might be useful if we just go back and remember kind of what the elements are that make something prima facie defamatory. And it's a pretty low bar, right? There needs to be a statement that identifies the plaintiff explicitly or implicitly. Uh, That needs to be published in the sense that it's communicated by the defendant to someone other than the plaintiff. Uh, And then it needs to be something that would tend to lower the plaintiff's reputation in the eyes of a reasonable person. And we can get more into it later, but because defamation is such a low bar, most of the action is in terms of the defenses, right? Once the plaintiff has kind of met those three elements, a defendant can then argue liability shouldn't ultimately be imposed because the words are true or they fell into the scope of fair comment or they were made on an occasion of qualified privilege. So certainly not every situation of misinformation or disinformation, as you say, is gonna qualify, but lots of them would if you just think about those kind of three pretty modest requirements for what makes something um, prima facie defamatory. I mean, in a sense, right, your, your typical textbook defamation case is someone spreading misinformation or disinformation about the plaintiff, provided that the nature of that information lowers the plaintiff's reputation. That's kind of what most of these cases are in a sense. So I, I think the cause of action is, is pretty well suited to deal with that situation when you go back to what the elements of the tort actually are
0: we've seen it used increasingly as a as a rather potent legal mechanism certainly certainly in the US and you know we can get into this because i understand that the law of defamation in the US is quite different than in Canada we've seen it used as a tool in the US courts it's been used against fox news with the uh, rather expensive lawsuit for them. Donald Trump lost a defamation suit. There's the case of Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook uh, parents of the victims of uh, the school shooting. So we've seen all these big headline cases take place in the U.S. We, and you know I th- we're beginning to hear lawyers liken defamation lawsuits to legal actions against product manufacturers, for example. Mm-hmm drawing the analogy that's a little bit like enforcing their, their responsibility for the effects of their, of their speech. You know, how do you see that? Yeah. I mean, so
1: in, in the, in the States and in some of those examples that you've, you've given defamation has been, um, the right, the right tool to deal with, uh, those pretty high profile incidents of misinformation or or disinformation and I think if you know if similar things happened in Canada the Canadian law of defamation we can get into what some of the differences are but the Canadian law of defamation would would also be well suited in those in those kind of situations including the you know the Dominion voting machine case and and the Alex Jones situation um, I mean the one one thing that is quite different though, in terms of, you, know, you mentioned kind of an analogy to kind of product liability or, or kind of achieving some degree of behavior modification, perhaps from potential defendants. In the US, the numbers on the damages are just astronomical, right? I don't remember exactly what the Dominion case settled for, but I I seem to remember it was like north of $700 million or something.
0: Yeah, it was close to $800 million, I think.
1: Those are just numbers that we, and this perhaps is broader to tort law more generally uh, in the States versus Canada, but those are just numbers that we just don't see in Canada. I mean, the biggest defamation award in Canada that I'm aware of is, is about $3 million. Um, so it just, it, it is not necessarily speaking to, uh, the, the law or the tool not being um, the right one for these cases but in terms of a practical impact or message sent to the pocketbooks of defendants you're just not going to get those numbers in Canada or anywhere close to it
0: mind you those numbers are as you say astronomical in the states I'm not sure that <laughs> I'm not sure the effects have necessarily been all that successful either because as far as I know Alex Jones still broadcasts some pretty untrue material out there. And even in the case of Donald Trump, he sort of commented his case afterwards and almost redefamed,
1: Doubled down on it. Right.
0: But uh, what's the difference between Canada and the U.S.? I mean, we think of Canada's defamation laws as plaintiff-friendly, do we not?
1: I think that's fair to say, uh, certainly compared to the U.S., for sure.
0: So can you explain that?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, the biggest difference is that in Canada, a plaintiff doesn't have to prove that the statements in question are false, right? So if we if you just think back to those three elements of defamation we talked about a moment ago, right? Identifying the plaintiff, communicating it to one other person, and words that tend to lower the reputation of the plaintiff. No, nothing in there deals with having to prove the falsity of The statements. And instead, in Canada, truth operates as a defense. It's called the justification defense. So the onus, if the plaintiff has met those three elements, shifts the defendant to prove the truth of a prima facie defamatory statement. And if they do, then they won't be held liable. In the US, though, that is flipped. As part of their case, the plaintiff has to show the statements in question purport to be factual and that they are false and that's kind of at least in part a function of the first amendment jurisprudence down there which is kind of its own beast uh in terms of protecting expression we don't really have we have to be of the charter of course but it's not it's not the same as as the kind of uh, American strain of free expression jurisprudence. So from a plaintiff's perspective, that would make a jurisdiction like Canada more attractive, right? You don't have to prove the statements are false. now, and, you know, we're sure we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but the situation, I don't think the headline that Canada is a um, more plaintiff friendly jurisdiction changes but it becomes a little more nuanced when you introduce the anti-slap laws into the mix right and these are these are laws that provide defendants with the possibility of having a defamation suit dismissed at an early juncture if if certain requirements are are met
0: the notion being that defamation suits can have an un, you know have a, a chilling effect on suppressing open debate which is why we've got provincial anti-slap laws to target strategic lawsuits against public participation.
1: Exactly right. So when you look at, when you layer on those laws, um, you know, I think I think it does have some impact in terms of how attractive or plaintiff friendly Canada is, or at least the Canadian jurisdictions that have anti-slap laws. And in particular, I'm thinking of a the common law anti-slap laws in Ontario and BC and Quebec has its own slightly different version of anti-slap laws. But when you look at those jurisdictions and it's interesting, actually, I mean, there was, there was a report that the center for free expression did recently where they kind of looked at the anti-slap laws in Canadian jurisdictions and compared them to the anti-slap laws in us jurisdictions and a few other countries around the world as well. And they kind of scored them on different metrics, like, you know, what's the scope of the law, what are the cost consequences, what are the various burdens and onuses on plaintiffs and defendants under each law. And at least on paper, they concluded that Ontario and BC had the most kind of defendant-friendly anti-slap laws uh, of all the jurisdictions they looked at. And, And as I say, they looked at a number of them in the states as well. So. I think that probably makes, at least Ontario and B.C., kind of slightly less palatable for plaintiffs than they might have been prior to the introduction of anti-slap laws. But, but it doesn't fundamentally change the fact that Canadian defamation law is structurally more plaintiff-friendly than, than American defamation law.
0: Now, there was a case that was rendered very recently by the Supreme Court of Canada, which dismissed a defamation action using an anti-slap law in B.C., it did so by highlighting the public interest in protecting counter-speech. This is the Hansman decision, and you've had some participation in it, have you not? And tell us why it's an important decision.
1: Sure, yes. Yeah. So this is the Hansman and Newfeld case that was released kind of late May of this year. And yeah, just by way of disclosure, I represented the Center for Free Expression as an intervener in that case, but obviously I'm here just kind of giving my own views and not purporting to speak on their behalf. It was a fascinating case in many ways, and it's an important one for a few reasons. And maybe to appreciate why it might be worth just briefly going through the structure of what the anti slap test is and how it's supposed to work. And remember, these are kind of brought by defendants to try and get a plaintiff's case thrown out. Um, The onus starts on the defendant to show that The expression at issue that gave rise to the lawsuit relates to a matter of public interest.
0: So this lawsuit centered around critical remarks made by a certain Barry Newfield, who was a public school board trustee, about an education policy to foster inclusion and respect for students who'd face discrimination in school. He was criticized by another person, Glenn Hansman, also, I I understand, a figure of, of import in the community. A teacher and a former president of the BC Teachers Federation. And he basically, as I understand it, said that Newfield's views were bigoted and transphobic. Right. And Newfield accused Hansman of him.
1: Correct. So that's yeah, that's the that's the background in that speech. And, and in that case, and you're absolutely right, that it was kind of framed by the Supreme Court as counter speech, right? So the idea was that the plaintiff made some initial expression to to many kind of controversial expression on these kind of social issues and then there was counter counter speech or counter expression by the defendant that kind of labeled the plaintiff as you said and that's what gave rise to the to the underlying litigation that's that's the factual backdrop of the case and then when you look at the structure of of the test which i think is It's important to kind of recognize the importance of the Supreme Court's decision here. The first thing that happens is is this defendant having to show that it's on a matter of public interest. That's a low bar. Most cases don't turn on it. It's a very broad and generous kind of approach to that question. And then if, if if the defendant can show that, then the onus flips to the plaintiff to show two things. First, they have to clear a merits threshold, showing that their case has sufficient merit. That's not a very onerous standard. A lot of time and energy gets eaten up in anti-slap motions on this merits threshold issue, and we can come back to that. But that's the first thing they have to show, that there's basically there's a basis in law and the record for them to win on the merits. And then... After that, the plaintiff also needs to show that the harm they've suffered or that they're likely to suffer is sufficiently serious that the public interest of allowing the action to proceed outweighs the public interest in protecting the expression at issue. And that's sometimes called the public interest weighing stage. And that's what courts have said is really supposed to be the crux or the core of the anti-slap analysis. And most cases will turn on that last public interest weighing part of the test. And Hansman is really a case that focuses on that public interest weighing and offers some guidance on how to conduct that weighing. Um, It talks about other elements of the test too, but that's, that's the meat of the decision is talking about how we do this public interest weighing. And two points kind of in particular jump out from the decision when it comes to that. First, the court says, look, when we're doing this weighing, we're I'm going to be prepared to look at whether the defendant's speech was uh, intended to defend vulnerable or marginalized groups, right? And, and in, in, in the Neufeld case, the defendant was speaking out in response to the plaintiff's speech that he perceived to be potentially damaging to transgender individuals, amongst others. And so while, while there can be other elements in the weighing analysis that can tilt the scales one way or another, all else being equal, what we're hearing from the court in enhancement is expression that's designed to protect a vulnerable or a marginalized group is expression worth protecting that militates in favor of dismissing a lawsuit. Uh, it's not to say that's always going to be the result, but it's a factor that will weigh on that side of the scale, so to speak. And that's important and that's something new. The second thing that the court says in in this case, which I think is important, it says, we're not going to take into account when it comes to the weighing analysis, any claim that there's a potential chilling effect on the plaintiff. And I think you said this earlier, Eve, but the, the idea of a chilling effect is really central to anti slap law, right? Um, The whole raison d'être of anti-slap laws is kind of to guard against an outcome that, you know, lawsuits are going to chill the ability of the defendant or others in a potentially similar situation to speak out on issues of public importance. We're going to try and avoid um, that negative chill on free expression through uh, these anti-slap motions. That's the whole whole ballgame. But what the court below in the, in the Hansman case had accepted was a very different version of the chilling effect, right? The court below had said, actually, the chilling effect in this case militates in favor of letting the plaintiff's case continue because if he was not allowed to sue for the counter speech that came his way, then that would chill his ability to say controversial things in the first place. Uh, that's a very novel, to put it mildly, argument. Take on the chilling effect, yeah, and it's one that the court, Supreme Court expressly rejects uh, in no uncertain terms. So, what, when we're doing this public interest weighing analysis, you know, what weighs in favor of the plaintiff is the harm or the likely harm they'll suffer as a result of the of the expression, but the chilling effect has nothing to do with it. That's not part of the equation uh, when it comes to the plaintiff's end of the scale, and the court's very clear on that.
0: There's something else that's interesting in that decision, though, which is the court writes that the closer the expression lies to the core values of to be, so freedom of expression, including truth-seeking participation in political decision-making and diversity in the forms of self-fulfillment and human flourishing, the greater the public interest in protecting it. That sort of imbues... Infuses, uh, you know, charter values into the discussion, does it not?
1: It does. It does. And it it builds on what the court has said in its previous, uh, there's a previous pair of cases dealing with anti-slap laws from Ontario back in 2020, where the court kind of opened this door, so to speak, and, and said that uh, not only the charter values underlying Section 2B, which is what, what you just referenced, but charter values more generally, including those underlying, for example, the right to equality, that is all legitimate to be taken into uh, consideration at the public interest weighing part of the test. And, you know, I think I've I've
0: uh,
1: kind of seen and, and heard some criticisms of, of the Hansman decision for the court essentially passing a value judgment on the worth or the quality of speech. And look, I mean, I think that's correct. I think that's what the court is doing when it comes to the public interest weighing analysis enhancement. But it's also inherent in the very structure of anti-slap laws. When we're looking at weighing what's the value in protecting this speech, there's no way to run from assessing the quality of the expression. Implicitly or explicitly, the court needs to make an assessment of whether this is the kind of expression they think is worth protecting. And I don't think that the anti-slap paradigm works without some sort of value judgment. And I'd rather have the courts address that head on and do so transparently, which I think is what we see in the Hansman decision.
0: And I understand that. I'm just wondering whether down the road, there's not some potential for unintended consequences of basing judgments on the quality of the speech based on charter values, whether that can step over too many lines at one point and get overly broad to the point where suddenly we are perhaps curtailing free speech too much.
1: Well, I mean, the... The, the development of the law of defamation in Canada has always been, um, I mean, it's distinct from the the court's free expression, constitutional jurisprudence, but it's always been developed in a way that the court says is kind of in line with section two B. That includes the development of responsible communication defense, their tweaks to the fair comment defense, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is kind of keeping in, in line with that. And frankly, I mean, When it comes to assessing the quality of the expression, which, as I say, I think is unavoidable, um, in my view, at least, you know, I think the 2B jurisprudence and the idea of looking at whether the speech at issue falls uh, near the core of what 2B is designed to protect or at least advances the same purposes and values 2B is designed to achieve is a pretty good goalpost or measuring stick for for at least starting the analysis. I think the charter values as one of the tools, not the only tool, but one of the tools to assess the quality of the expression, is actually a useful uh, a useful starting point. But that's not to say that um, if speech is unconnected to those values underlying to be that it's not going to be worthy of protection. It's just one of the things the court will look at when uh, calibrating that end of uh, end of the scale. and and in my view, that's um, it's appropriate, and it's uh, it's in keeping with the larger trend of the court developing the law of defamation, In a way that is consistent with charter values
0: and so in this particular case you think that the court struck the right balance
1: in this case i do think the court struck the right balance i mean i i agree with your assessment eve that that in a sense um it's always easier to say this once you see the final decision but in a sense this was (laughs) an easier case because on at least on the facts as found by the court we have a situation where the plaintiff hadn't really suffered any harm, right? His speech wasn't chilled. He kept making the same kind of statements even after the defendants spoke out against him. His career wasn't impacted. He, he ran again and was was reelected for his position as school trustee. So that end of the scale was, um, there was not a lot of compelling arguments on that side. And on the other side, you know, you have the expression at issue Being the kind of thing that the court felt was worthy of protection for a number of reasons, including the fact that it aimed to speak out in favor of a vulnerable group. So on the facts as found by the court, I think the balance certainly favored the outcome of having the defamation case
0: dismissed. So you, you represent a lot of media companies in your practice? Correct, yes. So how have they been using anti-slap legislation, and how do you consider anti-slap laws to have had uh, – have they had a positive or negative effect on on freedom of expression?
1: Overall, I think it, it's been a positive effect on freedom of expression because it is – you know they, they, the anti-slap motions aren't important, and at least in the right case, it can be a very powerful tool for defendants to avoid – years of litigation on the long road to a trial. And as you say, media companies have successfully relied on anti-slap laws. And and for them, you know, I, I think it's not just a question of saving financial resources by having cases dismissed. It's also a matter of ensuring that the journalists and editors and reporters are able to focus on their work, right? For these people to get dragged into lengthy litigation that goes on for years can be a huge drain on their time and energy.
0: I mean, is it fair, first of all, to say that defamation laws, they were conceived with primarily the media in mind?
1: I'm not sure if they were conceived with primarily the media in mind. I think that they have developed in a way that is more responsive to the media as a particular defendant, and I'm thinking in particular of the responsible What's often called the responsible journalism defense, by shorthand, although it can apply to people other than journalists as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I mean that that is a defense that was really kind of pushed for, spearheaded by the media, and I think the media's concerns were front and center. So it's certainly something that has been taken into account in the development of defamation law, for sure. But for for the you know for the for the anti-slap situation with media defendants i and i do think it's it's important because it can prevent um i think in a real way it can it can operate to help prevent a chilling effect right um if you if you got a journalist who's stuck in litigation for five years because they wrote a story i mean next time they may just hold back on a controversial issue, or uh, not write that story to avoid that. The anti-slap process isn't a full answer to the concern, but I think it does mitigate it. Right? If 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 people who are writing those stories understand, look, this uh, there is a way to. If if the lawsuit comes along, there is a way, relatively quick and painless, compared to the alternative. Um, at least in some cases, to have those lawsuits dismissed without, uh, you know, going on the full road to trial.
0: Yeah. And in an age of newsroom cutbacks and layoffs, this is probably almost necessary.
1: For sure. Any, any means of resolving litigation more expeditiously and less expensively, I think is welcome.
0: I think the issue with anti-slap legislation is that we want a fairly quick process that's going to avoid drawn out litigation that can go on for years. At the same time, we still want to make sure that the case has some merit to it and whether it should move forward. So, you know, how is that playing out? And I mean, how long do these anti-slap motions actually take to to litigate?
1: So, I mean, it's it's a very good question and it is... um... It is that the tension is real and it's a difficult one to resolve. I mean, it's, it's, and you're quite right, it's kind of at the heart of the whole anti slap regime. On the one hand, these are designed to end litigation quickly so defendants can get on with their lives. Um, And so for that to happen, you necessarily have to deprive a plaintiff from having their full day in court on the merits as they would in the ordinary course of civil litigation and courts are instinctively wary of doing that and I think they're even more instinctively wary of doing it um, at an early stage in the process uh, and anti-slap cases often are brought at a very early stage in the process there that they can technically be brought even before the close of pleadings um, so there there is this problem. And the practical way that the tension plays out in many cases is that these motions have become somewhat unwieldy, right? They, they were designed to be, in the words of the Supreme Court cases from 2020, a, a kind of a summary screening tool. Uh, that is not how they are treated in most cases. They are something if you look at the records on these cases, it's something closer to summary judgment motions often. And on the one hand, you know, it's easy to be critical of counsel for um, pursuing it that way. On the other hand, given the stakes from each side, right? the, The plaintiff is fighting for the right to continue their case, period. The defendant is fighting the ability to be relieved of the litigation completely I mean these are these are huge stakes and there are significant potential cost consequences as well which we can which we can come to but it's not difficult to understand why lawyers might be tempted to leave you know very few stones unturned <laughs> when it comes to putting their legal arguments and factual record together, for the
0: court lawyers do not like to leave stones unturned
1: no right this is like there's a natural kind of if only i'd done that maybe it would have been different but i think we all wrestle with and when it comes to the anti-slap situation i think we see that often on on steroids and courts have become very frustrated with this our court of appeal in ontario in particular has issued recently like a pretty scathing decision, just saying like these motions have become something very different from what they were intended to be. Um, And trying to send a strong message to the bar, I think that these should not be litigated as if they were summary judgment motions. We don't need to get into the granular elements of the merits, for example, which is often the piece that consumes the most time and energy, even though few cases turn on it given that it's not a very um not a very high bar for uh the plaintiff to to meet that kind of modest merits threshold um and courts are kind of sending the message that that look if you think your case is right for an anti-slap you basically better be able to convince us in most cases that you should win on the public interest weighing that should be where your focus is um, and that's going to be what drives the result in most most cases. I think it remains to be seen whether these kind of cries for a reformed approach will be heeded by the bar or how long it takes for a bit of a culture shift on these motions to happen.
0: How would they perform it?
1: At- well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I think I think first of all, you probably have to be a little bit more selective in in the cases that might be eligible for bringing an anti-slap motion. Uh, and, and I don't mean eligible in the sense that there would be a legislative bar, but I mean eligible in the sense of kind of counsel exercising their judgment and discretion as to the odds of succeeding um, on an anti-slap motion. Not Not every case is going to be right for an anti-slap. And I think we went through a period where
0: everybody was trying it
1: everybody was trying it in every case and and in for a while and i don't know if it's still this way i mean in toronto you wouldn't even they wouldn't even give you an anti-slap motion date until you went to a case conference and kind of at least at a preliminary level convinced a judge that your case was right for it cuz the court was just getting flooded with these things so it, it probably takes a bit bit better judgment on the front end or a bit more careful judgment on the front end about what whether a case is a good candidate for it. And then for the cases that are good candidates for it, I mean it's a related, but I guess a distinct point, when counsel are kind of thinking about how to argue the case or how to focus the case, I think looking at that final stage, the public interest weighing, should really be the key in in most cases. Uh, and getting bogged down in the merits, which is really what drives uh, in most of these the time and expense and the, and cost of uh, bringing one of these motions, if you're essentially doing a mini trial on the merits, should should be, again, in most cases, kind of secondary to putting together the record on the arguments on the public interest weighing, which which itself could be a task, but in most situations is not gonna be as uh, detailed or as much effort as, as doing the merits because uh, the merits in these cases is usually what uh, is the main driver of, uh, of making them complex and expensive.
0: I'd like to ask you a little bit, you know, just turning your gaze to the future a little bit. Where do you see the law of defamation going in the next few years? Again, you know, we spoke a little bit about the context. I might invite you to consider too also the fact that we have all these internet laws that are under consideration and online harms law proposals but i sometimes wonder if they don't fail to grapple with a certain reality that you know our, our right to f- free expression protects misinformation in many ways and disinformation there's no law against it unless it falls within uh, an exception such as defamation or perjury or uh, hate speech i'm wondering if the law of defamation as our as our lawmakers are beginning to consider how to deal with this issue of misinformation online speech and whatnot is there a role for defamation law in there somewhere
1: so i mean it's a, it's a very good it's a very good question i think you know we have to keep the two ideas somewhat distinct right i mean a lot of the proposals that are coming out for dealing with um online harms and, and etc um are really i mean they're not they're not criminal, but they are regulatory in the sense that it's kind of the state exercising a degree of oversight and enforcement of consequences triggered by the state for certain types of online um, expression or or, or speech. Um, and uh, as I understand it, I'm not sure that the exact details of all that have been worked out yet, but some of what's under consideration the defamation context is you know it private it's private exactly and it's so it's a bit of a different beast in that respect That doesn't quite have the same kind of state in premature of saying what you can and what you can't do it's it's a private consequence for doing something where the court says you've wronged somebody else but i do think you know moving moving forward both kind of the state responses to online speech and regulating online speech is an area to watch. And it's one and that can be the subject of its own podcast. I mean, that's one that raises a lot of tricky issues. And on the defamation side, I mean, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting is how the defamation laws adapt and apply to AI-generated content, right? Because there, there's, there, there's going to be, and it hasn't happened yet, but it's not impossible to imagine situations where something that that, that is published by uh, one of these AI programs ends up uh, being seen as defamatory. And, and then there's all sorts of questions around who exactly is um, responsible for that it's not. Net. Is it the prompter
0: or is it the-, the...
1: The program, what are the inputs that have gone into the program to generate that result? I think these are, these are all issues that have not been uh, worked out at all. But given the speed at which these AI programs are coming to dominate or at least influence a number of different industries, I, I can't imagine it's too
0: long before some of this comes to the fore. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, we actually have journalists where we have articles in, in, you know, news articles that are being written by um, artificial intelligence now. Right, which is just... In some cases. So, because, I, don't, well, I don't know who you would sue for that. I guess you would sue the the, 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 the outfit, but...
1: Right, But the, and, and there's a question about kind of what what, you know, in, in different contexts, there could be a different web of people potentially responsible uh certainly the people who put their name on it and get it out there i mean i think that that will not change but whether you can go beyond that into others responsible for the program or the data that the program was using or or etc i think is it, it raises some interesting questions
0: so that's probably that, do you think that's the that's the area where we're going to see the most development in the years to come
1: i mean i think it's just it's an area that that's pr- probably the most kind of Unexplored to date, and I, I do think it's one that we're probably uh, people who practice in the defamation area are going to have to get up to speed with pretty soon, as this ends up playing a bigger and bigger role in our day-to-day lives. The the use of AI in all sorts of ways.
0: You said you wanted to, you, you, and I, it was, it's probably good advice to keep keep separate these ideas of you know how the state regulates speech or regulates online content. Versus this notion of private action to enforce or to police the spreading of untruths. I still wonder, though, is there not is it is it possible is it not impossible to completely separate the two? And my thinking here is that you know you you know you have the state, which I, can, as far as I can tell, for years has essentially been you know sort of uh, divested itself of the responsibility of. Uh, managing what is said online is sort of, you know, uh, outsourced it to you know the the large media platforms. They want them to moderate the content, but at the same time, I'm wondering as we sort of explore a legislative framework to deal with online uh, spreading of information, how much thought should we be giving to leaving open a space for private actions, such as actions and defamation
1: i'm I'm going to be somewhat careful here because i'm i'm not super familiar with at least the latest proposals for the online harms legislation or, or the framework being put forward for that but i i i think you're you're right that divorcing the private and the public action completely is perhaps kind of too bright of a line to draw and it my my recollection at least is that for some of the proposals that were being explored for the online harms reduction, it was actually in some ways a mix of of both. It was it was a process or a framework that the government put into place and would ultimately enforce, but it was triggered by, or at least could be triggered by kind of private complaints, right? So that there was still a role for individuals to come forward with particular problems or complaints they had and i think you're so that's something that there's there's a there's a role for private actors in that sense and i think more generally whether a space should be carved out for defamation in in a in a sense that assumes that people can kind of access the courts to bring those proceedings when the reality for many people, is very different, right? I mean, just having the time, resources, and energy to bring a defamation lawsuit forward is not going to be available to most people. And so in terms of kind of access to uh, justice or at least access to some sort of remedy, I think we always have to be careful of striking the right balance, but affording some sort of framework where it is relief is more readily available upon the filing of a complaint or upon taking certain action pursuant to a statute rather than doing the full lawsuit. You know, I do see the value in that. I think we need to be kind of careful not to not to overstep and the devil is in the details in these kind of things. But um, from a practical perspective, the purely private route is not going to be on the table for a lot of
0: folks. I think that's a good place to stop. Justin Safayeni, thank you so much for joining us for this talk. It was uh, very informative and um, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.